Thank you to Dr. Dusing, Dr. Allen, for this opportunity to preach the Word of God to you. Some years ago, I heard a story about an NFL player who would walk into the stadium each day for practice, and when he walked into the stadium, he was greeted by a kindly gentleman who seemed to know him but never introduced himself. And so day after day, this NFL player walked into the stadium, went to practice, nodded or said hello to this gentleman, and generally went on his way. Time passed, and eventually, the NFL player heard that this gentleman who greeted him day after day after day had sadly passed away. He had died. The NFL player was further shocked to learn that this gentleman was his father. He'd never known him. They'd never been introduced on those terms. They had no working relationship at any point in this NFL player's young life. And yet this father had taken the time to identify his son and then greet him each morning out of love, yet never felt comfortable directly introducing himself to his son. He must have been immensely proud of his boy, made it to the NFL, had triumphed over many difficulties, and yet even with those lofty circumstances in view, the father never could quite bring himself to introduce himself to his son. In today's passage in Ephesians 1, 3 to 14, I'm reminded of this story because I think there are a good number of Christians who hear very little about God the Father and don't necessarily think for those reasons a lot about God the Father. We think and sing and talk a great deal about Jesus Christ. And that is right. It is right that we do so because the Father has pointed up his son, exalted his son even, given him the name that is above every name. And yet, in biblical terms, in theological terms, the son is never intended in his mission to eclipse the father or make the father of no importance to us. In fact, it's of vital importance that you and I learn as much as we can from the scripture about God the father, God the son, and God the spirit. So this morning, we have the privilege of looking at eight truths about the Father's grace. Eight truths about the Father's grace. My prayer is that we see with fresh eyes this morning just how good God our Father is to us, and perhaps we have not been estranged from Him. I pray that's not the case, but we learn more about who He is, and we feel His smile as He greets us in our life each morning. We're going to work through the verses as we go. Our first truth is that the Father has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Verse 3 of Ephesians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. It's poignant to think about these words because the Apostle Paul wrote them in prison, most likely between AD 60 and 62. It's also noteworthy to see how exalted God is in Paul's vision because Paul is writing to a people in a city, Ephesus, featuring one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. The temple of Artemis was four times larger than the more famous Parthenon and featured ongoing 
worship, pagan worship that is, involving prostitution and blasphemy. Paul begins his letter to the church in this city with a lengthy lengthy barakah. This is a Jewish prayer that would stretch on and that would praise God for his blessings. That is how Paul begins his letter to the Ephesians. And he is writing about how God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places as he is in prison in earthly places. Yet here, Paul prays not only with thanks for blessings to the Jews, the original covenant people, but to the Gentiles as well. We are reminded by the Apostle Paul's example here to pray and thank God for all his blessings and benefits. This is truly one of the best ways to fight unbelief, sin, and discouragement in this world for as long as we are here to praise God. God. When was the last time, college student, seminarian, staff member, faculty member, that you took time not so much to ask for things of God, though that's clearly biblical and good to do, but to praise God for all his blessings and benefits? When was the last time you unleashed a barakah in your family worship or in your peer group, in your dorm room, wherever the case may be, and you just let loose praising God as to how good he is. This is how Paul begins his letter. And he lifts the Ephesian church's eyes and by extension through time, roughly 2,000 years, our eyes to see that we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realm. The realm, as F.F. Bruce says, to which Christ has been raised and to which his people, united to him by faith, have been raised with him. Though we live on earth here, we enter into our heavenly hope here and now. And Paul is keen to help his audience understand that they have every spiritual blessing. There is nothing that you and I lack. Everything spiritual that God could give us in Christ, he has given us. What a starting point for our prayer life, for our contemplation of the Father. The Father has withheld no good thing, Paul first teaches us. Second truth we learn about the Father. He has chosen us in Christ to be holy. Verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Before the world was founded, Paul teaches the Ephesians, the Father chose us in the Son. As far back as you can possibly go, before the foundation of the world, we were chosen by the Father in the Son. And this was a purposive choice. The Father desired that we be holy and blameless in his presence. So the Christian has the blessing and even the status of definitive sanctification. We talk a good deal in systematic theology, the classes you take here at the uh, undergraduate and master's level about progressive sanctification. That's typically how people think about godliness, growth in godliness day by day by day in the Christian life, and that is glorious. But the Bible also teaches us definitive sanctification, that we are rendered holy in Christ in the moment of our God-given conversion. 
in that moment when regeneration from God, from the Spirit, produces faith. In that moment, your status, your identity is holy and blameless, and no one can take that status or identity away from you. No one can undo it. No one can edit it. The Christian is holy, and not holy because of our efforts, but because of God's choice before the foundation of the world. Before you were a distant speck on the horizon, this was your fate. Calvin said it well. It is not from the sight of our deserving, but because our heavenly father has engrafted us through the blessing of adoption into the body of Christ. This is why you and I are holy. It's fundamentally not because of our efforts, not because of our doing, but because of God's choice, God's purpose before the foundation of the world. And so, This is who we are. This is what we have. We are holy because of the Father's will realized in the Son. We are blameless before God. What release from fear and insecurity. Insecurity. Interesting term, isn't it? The opposite of insecurity is not security. The opposite of insecurity is theocentricity. Fancy term. God-centeredness. That is the opposite, the true opposite of insecurity, this very common psychological and therapeutic phrase. All of us struggle at some level with what is called insecurity. The the antidote to what we call insecurity is to know who we are in God. And we talk a great deal about justification by faith alone, and we must, but we must also talk about definitive sanctification, that we are holy and blameless. What release from every evil thing we have in these words, even as we are in a context, a society that feels and probably is losing its mind on a daily basis. If you are not in God, if you are not holy and blameless, if you are not justified by faith, you don't have security. You may function better than some people around you, sure. You can be better functioning or less well functioning in this world, but you don't ultimately have an anchor outside of God. So you have this, Christian. You you have this now, and you need to make good on this reality. Third glorious truth from our text. The Father has predestined us for adoption. Picking up at the end of verse 4, in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Here is one of three active participles that signal important points in this passage. Eulogesas, who has blessed us in verse 3, now in verse 5, proorisas, having predestined us, Paul says, and norisas in verse 9, having made known. In these terms, Paul is communicating the outline, the exoskeleton of Christian salvation. The focus for Paul as he blesses God is not anything that we have done. The focus for Paul is all that God has done. 
Now let's have a moment of honesty. The term predestination is one of the most fraught terms in evangelical circles. And some of you may be grappling with this term and wrestling with it. And there will, in a room of this size with a student body this large, be some difference of opinion and conviction on this matter. And let that be said. We don't, we don't want to concretize our view alone on some contested matters as if we ourselves have uh, the perfect theology and no one else does. Nonetheless, hear the the framework in which predestination comes in this passage. It is in love. It's in love that God is predestined. Is that the normal way that people talk about predestination? Isn't it usually framed as if you embrace predestination, you embrace this cold, hard, rationalistic theology that, yes, has this big God theology in view, but loses sight of the human dimension, basically. You just have this robot God who controls us all. That is not how the Apostle Paul frames predestination. It's all in love, and it's all for adoption as sons in the Son, Sons being an intentional word choice there because we have the privilege, the inheritance of the firstborn son effectively in spiritual terms, as we'll talk about in just a minute. Here, John Knox on this count, how important it is to understand God's eternal predestination. Yet I say, Knox writes about 500 years ago, that the doctrine of God's eternal predestination is so necessary to the church of God that without the same can faith neither be truly taught, neither surely established. Man can never be brought to true humility and knowledge of himself, neither yet can he be ravished in admiration of God's eternal goodness and so moved to praise him as appertaineth. Any chance you get to use the word appertaineth in a sermon or teaching session? You you take it, right? Fancy term. (laughs) In simpler form, what Knox is saying is that until this locks into place, we won't fully plumb the depths of just how good God is. That in love, before the foundation of the earth, he predestined us for adoption. And this means then that we have every blessing in the beloved. Because of the purpose of his will, the Father's will is in view here three times in this passage, verses 5, 8, and 11. Because of this will, God has shown us his glorious grace, and he has blessed us in the beloved. We have every blessing in the beloved, in Jesus Christ. Mike Reeves has captured this dynamic nicely in his book on delighting in the Trinity. He writes this, the father is the lover, the son is the beloved, the father's love is primary, the father is the loving head. That then means that in his love, he will send and direct the son, whereas the son never sends or directs the father. And here, Don Carson on the son's relationship with the father in these terms as well. The Father initiates, sends, commands, commissions, grants. The Son responds, obeys, performs His Father's will, receives authority. Carson goes on to say that this activity is always in one direction, from the Father to the Son, this planning, setting up direction. And then he concludes the point that the Son always does what pleases the Father. The beloved loves the one who loves Him. 
And the Father's love means that God the Son, Jesus Christ, lives in adoration. What a picture of fatherhood this is. What a summons to earthly fathers, to Christian fathers, to think about how they raise their children, how we as heads of homes interact with and engage with our children. We always should think of our children in terms of love. Not because we are right on par with God the Father. There's what we call the creator-creature distinction between God the Father and every earthly father, separated by an infinite gap. And yet, when we're looking at this glorious picture of God the Father, is it not right that our hearts would be moved as fathers to seek by the Spirit's power to emulate the Father's character more and more as time goes on. We gaze with wonder in reading this passage upon the Father who has made us his own child. And we gaze with wonder upon the Son whose work has brought us home, who has gone before the judge and made it so that we who are estranged who had no father in natural terms, no heavenly father, can come into the family of God and no one can take our adoption away, though Satan will try. Satan will try to wrest us out of the father's home, to break in at midnight as we are sleeping and drag us out of the father's house. But because of the son's work on the cross, he cannot do it. He will try He will try to unsun you, but he cannot succeed. There is truly nothing he could do to pull that off. And that is because of our fourth truth. The Father has redeemed us through the blood of Christ. Picking up at verse 7, just the first part of it. In him, we have redemption through his blood. The work to bring us home was costly work all throughout the Bible. If God is going to make someone his child, there is going to have to be blood involved. There must be a sacrifice. This is not light and glancing work. We, fallen in Adam, a real historical Adam, committing a real historical fall with a real historical Eve, of course, we had to be redeemed or bought back from our terrible condition. This is not something that the New Testament, poof, debuts in a blaze of wonder. This is the way salvation has always been. It's always been costly and drenched in blood. We are sinners by nature. And we live in bondage under the sure promise of everlasting punishment, wrath for our sin. Our only hope is for someone to come along and redeem us. And this is what Christ has done by shedding his blood on the cross. The blood of Christ does not make salvation possible. The blood of Christ makes salvation certain. The only reason Satan cannot drag you out of the Father's home is because of the blood of Jesus Christ. 
It is because of redemption. It is because you have been bought back. And when Satan comes to accuse you and drag you out, you claim the blood and Satan must flee. The blood of Christ is so strong that it overcomes our sin. Blood represents the very life of Jesus Christ. He gives his very life as a substitute sacrifice for us. We will try a thousand cures for our sin in this world, but none of them will suffice. Only the blood of Christ redeems, and only the blood of Christ, therefore, unites, and only the blood of Christ, therefore, creates the church. And what the blood of Christ creates, no one can tear asunder. The church is bonded by the blood of the Son of God, in whom we have redemption, in whom we have fifth truth, forgiveness. The Father has lavished forgiveness upon us. Picking up in verse 7. We have the forgiveness of our trespasses, Paul writes, according to the riches of his grace, which he, the Father, lavished upon us. You are totally forgiven in Christ of your sin. Forgiveness has been lavished upon you and upon me. Paul's use of the Greek word eparasousin shows us this plainly. Elsewhere in Romans 3 and 5, this term is translated abounded. The father is not slow to forgive, though the stereotype of strong fathers is that they are authoritarian, excuse me, and, and mean, and they're slow to forgive, and you have to earn their love. Not so with the heavenly father. The heavenly father abounds with forgiveness and lavishes it upon the repentant. Paul is very concerned to communicate this concept in his writings. He talks about the wealth of his grace in Ephesians 2.7. He talks about the wealth of divine glory in Ephesians 1.18 and 3.16. He talks about the wealth of his kindness in Romans 2.4, the wealth of his glory in Romans 9.23, the wealth of God's wisdom and foreknowledge in Romans 11.33. The Father is wealthy truly wealthy in the spiritual sense. And he loves pouring out his spiritual goodness upon us through Christ by the spirit. The father in practical terms loves to forgive you. He loves to do it. He's predestined your forgiveness once and for all time. And then he's set it up so that he would forgive you over and over and over again afterwards. You can't get better terms than this. You can't get a wealthier father than this, one who abounds in love. And again, this passage is about the divine father. But what a convicting word and what a summons to we who are earthly fathers and Christian fathers. It's, it's not that this makes us collapse into only, you know, sort of singing kumbaya in our homes or something like this. It is that we who have been forgiven much by the Father love to forgive. And this is a major part of our character. If someone were to ask others about us, we pray that they would say, you know the weird thing about that, that dude? He lavishes forgiveness upon people. 
I don't know why. We pray that it would be so in light of the divine. Father, we all fail in many ways here. Every earthly father does. You and I do. And yet, what an upward call this is to us. Sixth truth in this passage. The father has made known to us his will. Picking up at the end of verse 8. In all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. There is no attribute of God that we are more tempted to doubt than the wisdom of God. Every last one of us struggles in some sense with trusting the wisdom of God. What does Paul teach us here? He teaches us that God has made known the mystery of his will, this is the Father, in all wisdom and insight. It's according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. The Father set forth or established in Christ. Paul is effectively saying to us, have faith, have faith in God. Trust God's wisdom infinitely because it is infinite wisdom. See what a great salvation the Father has planned and the Son has carried out. You can trust your heavenly Father. He does all things well. His plan is so fine-tuned, so intricate, so complex, so perfect that everything is united in Christ things on heaven and things on earth. There is nothing that Christ has not claimed by his cross. The world looks terribly chaotic and divided now. And indeed it is. It's just one bad news cycle after another. And every, here's a common thread. Everybody's pretty disheartened these days. So let there be unity among all. The world looks terribly divided. It is divided, but take heart, Christian. We know the truth of truths. Everything is being wound up in Jesus. Every last detail of your life is part of the plan for the fullness of time that all would be united in the warrior savior. Right now, we're living in the shadow lands, and it feels desperately dark. And in many senses, it is desperately dark, and it may grow darker yet in days to come. But if you look out over the hills into the darkness, if you squint and you peer, you can see a distant campfire. The enemy told his subjects, the devil, that the work was done and the Son of God was defeated. But there is a fire in the darkness and the warrior savior is going to return. He will come back. And when he comes, he will have his revenge in full and he will unite all things without exception. It is coming to pass now. 
and it will be brought to completion soon. Seventh glorious truth about the Father. The Father has predestined us to an eternal inheritance. Verse 11, in him, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him, the Father, who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. One of the sweetest realities in earthly life is an inheritance. Movies cover this theme repeatedly. We all clearly yearn for a massive inheritance to be granted to us. Here is the glorious spiritual truth. We all have one. Congratulations. You have inherited something of vastly greater significance than a $10 billion inheritance. You have Christ. You have heaven coming your way. You have ultimately the new heavens and the new earth. And this is once again because of the prophesion, the purpose in verse 11 of the Father. Nothing happens outside of the Father's purpose and the Father's will. Here we learn that the purpose works according to the counsel of his will. Please mark well then that the Father's purpose solves our problem of his wrath against sin. Sometimes you will hear today in apologetic terms that the Old Testament God is unloving and cruel and patriarchal, and the New Testament God is kind and loving and warm and accepting. And that is a pitting of the Old Testament God against the New Testament God. Friends, let me put it on record. We do not have two gods. We do not have a different God in the Old Testament and a different God in the New Testament, nor do we have two trinities, two different sets of the Godhead. We worship one God. We follow one eternal trinity. We have trusted or hoped in Christ in verse 12. These words are synonyms. To trust Christ as your Savior is to hope in him. To hope in him is to trust him. All our hope as believers is in Christ. None of it is in the world. There is to be nothing staked in your ministry on this world. Nothing. There is not some invisible respectability bar in terms of the broader culture that the Bible calls you to hit as a young Christian. I'm thinking in particular about pastors here. It's true of all Christians, men and women alike. But in terms of pastors, there's not this marking or meter or metric of cultural respectability that you're supposed to hit. And when you hit this mark, then you can start preaching and evangelizing and doing apologetics because you have proved yourself now to be reasonable. You're a reasonable person with whom people can do business. People can trust you. To adopt such a framework for ministry of whatever kind, but especially pastoral ministry, is to anchor your ministry in what the world thinks of you. And there is to be no anchoring of your ministry in the world and what it thinks of you. You're not going out of your way to be as much of a goofball as you possibly can. Let's not do that. Let's try to be wise and loving and reasonable, open to reason and these sorts of things. We don't want to bring scandal upon the gospel. But to any idea that our anchoring for ministry is in cultural respectability, 
take a knife, take it in your hand, and cut the anchor. Because there is no such call in the New Testament. All the horsepower for Christian ministry is staked upon Jesus Christ. All that we minister in Christian ministry is the word of God. Everything, I do mean everything, is staked on God. And this leads to our final point. The Father's plan leads to our being sealed with the Spirit. Verse 13, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Note that the gospel is truth. It is the word of truth. We are not all postmodernists now. We are not relativists. This is the word of truth. It must be believed in Ephesus, and it must be believed and ministered now. Because of this belief, the church has been sealed with the Spirit. The Spirit has given belief, and now the church is sealed with the Spirit. The Spirit's full indwelling presence in every believer means that the Ephesian church is guaranteed to inherit everlasting life with God. You now have the inheritance, though we await full and final possession of it. But mark this well, we have it now, and it's because we are sealed with the Spirit. There's so much I have left untouched in this glorious one sentence in the Greek passage. Let me give you three rapid-fire concluding applications. If you take my classes, you'll know that I call them takeaways. It's become something of a trademark, but I'll call them concluding applications. First, marvel at this elegant portrait of the Father's loving authority. This is what authority looks like. This is what fatherly love looks like. It looks like this. What a father we have. What relationship in general terms is more fraught on this earth than our relationship with our earthly father? Not having a strong relationship with your earthly father can cause great turmoil in you that spirals over years, even decades, even the entirety of your life. And I have real compassion for you if that is true for you in some form. But please note this. This is your true father. This is your heavenly father. However your earthly father failed, this is the father who will not fail you. His loving authority is good for you. Second, rejoice, rejoice in the intricate plan of salvation that the Godhead is carrying out even now. That which the Father has planned, the Son has executed, and the Spirit even now applies. The Godhead is carrying out one inseparable work, not indistinguishable, but one inseparable work, and no one can undo it. It is the plan of plans made by the Father, executed by the Son, applied by the Spirit, and no one can undo it. You will be saved because of the Godhead and its work. Third, when handling and ministering such high-level truths as these, teach them with love and graciousness to your people. 
exercise charity and understanding, allow time for people to work through these matters. There are a lot of things in scripture that take us time to handle. We think of, for example, views of the millennium or how to put the covenants together or the ordo salutis. There's many other things we could mention. These are tricky things. Christians are going to come to some slightly different subtleties in position. Let's exercise charity and grace to one another, especially in the context of the local church as people receive this truth, as many people have not had a strong relationship with their earthly father and need to be brought afresh and anew into the wonder of meeting for the first time for many perhaps in coming days, their true father, the one who greets you every morning but does not leave you wondering who he is but rather brings you into his very home to live with him for all eternity. Amen and amen. Let's pray. Father God, we are bowled over by the immensity of your kindness to us in Jesus Christ. We will never exhaust the depths of this love. Help us to savor it. Father, please take whatever is vying for first place in our heart in terms of our identity Please take whatever is preoccupying us day by day and and stressing us out and causing us anxiety and ultimately leading us away from you and recenter us in your love, in your loving authority, in the work that your son has carried out, in all the good that the spirit now applies to us. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.